There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Traditional healers, who are they, what do they do, and how are they involved in the lives of many South Africans as healers outside of the formal medical setting? On today's podcast entitled Traditional Healers, Are They Healthcare Providers? I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Soli Ratamani and Dr. Lerato Dikobi Kalane. Soli is a psychiatrist and the former head of department of psychiatry at Sefako Mahato Medical University, and he is the current chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on Mental Health, providing guidance to the South African Minister of Health on matters related to mental health. Lerato is a psychiatrist in clinical practice in Cape Town, and she also comes from a family of traditional healers on her maternal side. In July of this year, Lerato gave a talk entitled The Traditional Faith Healer's Role in Mental Health, and we'll be exploring this as the conversation unfolds. So, Soli and Lerato, welcome, and thank you for making the time to join me in discussing an important topic, I think, one that has direct relevance to South Africans who consult traditional healers, as well as those who don't, but might hold certain views. And I think that the title of the episode poses a question that I think reflects a fundamental issue, namely the role of the traditional healer. So, Lerat, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with you because I think it's important to define our terms of, of reference. So, what is a traditional healer as you understand it, not necessarily only in terms of what the technical definition might be, but, but, but as you understand it, coming from a family where there are traditional healers? Thank you so much, um, Professor Chris, for, for the invitation. I feel so awe-inspired that I'm going to be conversing with two of my seniors. So I feel very, very honored. <laughs> we're, happy, we're happy to have you join us. <laughs> so, so when we're talking, for, for me, um, traditional healers does not only mean African traditional healers, right. but, but everyone who is in the alternative healing space. You know, be it um, prophetic healers, faith healers, um, pastors that belong to the prophetic healing churches. So that for me is, is, is the great umbrella of, of what traditional healers are. Right. We then break it down. And then for me, the family that I come from, I come from a family of African traditional healers in the sense that my maternal grandmother um, in, in Sesotho, we would say So she used to admit patients to her home um, for whatever ailments that were within her scope of practice, treat them and then discharge them. Right. She, she was also able to take in initiates who would then um, be training or be guided in their spiritual growth to also become tradi African traditional healers. And then later on in life, my mom, who was a teacher, um, denied her calling for many, many years. Yes. And only took on her calling in my first year of training as a registrar while I was at Vescopi's Hospital. Okay. I got a frantic call from 
my brother saying mommy was rushed to hospital um, with a suspected um, peptic ulcer. And when we arrived there, the strangest presentation, she had epigastric pains and they were prepping her for theater to go for a G-scope. And I don't know why I asked the, the physician then if they checked cardiac markers, but I asked them to please check cardiac markers. And it turns out my mom had been having a series of myocardial infarctions. Right. Very strange. No um, predisposing factors at all. Lo and behold, mommy ended up in theater 12 stents later hmm. in ICU. And when she came back from ICU, she called um, the three of us, her children, to her bedside and said, you know what? Her grandmother, grandfather had visited her in ICU and they were asking her what she's doing. Why is she thinking that she's bigger than what she really is? Why is she not humbling herself and taking on the gift that they'd given her? And that's when my mom's journey started. <laughs> well, I think that's very important because this issue of, of, of calling and being called is something, and I'm going to take it straight into psychiatry now because it's something which we often grapple with as psychiatrists when we are faced with a patient who may manifest with certain psychiatric symptoms of which one might be the belief that they are, are called and that they have special powers and that everything around the presentation is to do with that and nothing else. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to that because I think it's a very important issue and I think it's one that we often grapple with as psychiatrists. When is a calling a psychiatric symptom as opposed to be simply a calling. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to come back to that one. But just coming back to the technical aspects of, of traditional healers, I like the way that you've kind of broadened the definition. Cause I think within a South African context, when one talks about a traditional healer, automatically it goes to African traditional healers. But I think you've extended the, the, the individuals who could fall under that umbrella term of traditional healers to also involve faith healers, alternative healers, and, and the like, which I think is very important because it certainly gives a very broad context to that concept of traditional healing. But if we, if we stay focused on, 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 on African traditional healers, my understanding is that there are different categories of traditional healers, uh, and each one has a specific function or role. And so would you care to, to, to elaborate a little bit on that, uh, Lerato? So, so there are diagnosticians. Right. And diagnosticians are the ones who are gifted or selected by the ancestors and given the gift of seeing. So, so they would see and then they would be able to diagnose. Then on the other side, there would be the healers or the medicine man or the herbalists who would have a natural gift of knowing the different indigenous plants and knowing what this plant, um, what, what ailment this plant can cure. So a medicine man or a herbalist is not necessarily isangoma, you know, or a, a seer. Sesotho, because I'm, I'm, I'm South Sotho, Sesotho, um, and I think with many of our other indigenous languages, vocabulary is very sparse. Yes. 
So, so when they say ungagaya sesuto, ngaga means doctor, okay. and then sesuto doctor or nguni doctor, so an, an African doctor. So we know also with us in the medical profession that you will find um, those specialities that are purely diagnostic. Right. I'm thinking of a radiologist. Absolutely correct. They are yes. more diagnostic. And then you find those who then do the healing. You find the, the, the cutting disciplines, right. the surgical disciplines. They cut, they remove the, the limb that's causing us a problem. So, so in, in African tradition as well, we find those different categories and different subspecialities. And I think that's very important because what we're talking about is actually, uh, let me say, an interdisciplinary system of referral where somebody will um, make a diagnosis and somebody else will actually do the treating and the healing. And these are not necessarily the same people or generally they, they wouldn't be the same people, but there would be an interaction between the two, almost like a referral system. Would that be, would that be correct? There should be. There should be a referral system because you also find those who are neither diagnosticians nor herbalists, but just messengers. Right. They will, they will get a message in a dream and they will bump into you randomly and tell you that one, two, three needs attention. That's fascinating. But they are not the ones that are going to diagnose the problem. So who are the messengers? Because now you're saying to me there's like a, a, a another party who could um, receive a message, be it in a dream, and then communicate that to not the, the um, diagnostician or the healer, but to the person who the dream relates to, to say, now listen – there's a problem and you need to consult so-and-so? Would that be how it works? Yes. So it's somebody who has um, the gift of prophecy, uh-huh. you know, or, or able to see certain things. And that's not only in, in African um, tradition, but also in, in certain, um, certain prophetic churches where you will be visiting a friend's church and they will call you up to the stage and then they will start telling you certain things truths about yourself and then the message would be go and do something about it so tell me something the person with the gift of seeing is not necessarily consulted they receive or they see and they then approach potentially to say "Mm, there could be a problem here this is the message we've received this is what you need to do could it work that way often yes yeah okay so how do you know that you are Seeing in the sense that you have a dream could involve a person. And how do you know that what you've dreamt has specific significance for that person in terms of there's a message that's come through ancestral or from the ancestors that I now have to communicate to that person? How do you, how do you know? Often, I'm, I'm, I'm talking from the people that I've come across, based in family or patients. They say that the, the, the ability to see certain things in dreams starts in childhood. Okay. And often as a child, it's very confusing. You don't know what it means. You don't know, do you tell? And sometimes you tell them that, oh, I saw Auntie so-and-so lying in a coffin. And then the adults would be like, hi, you don't speak of such things. And then you sort of get frightened into you know, not saying, not telling what these dreams are about. And as they grow, as they grow older and the intensity of the dreams increases, it 
they describe it as it, it gives you an inner sense of, of discomfort that if I don't speak out, they actually then start suffering themselves. And often they would present with psychiatric manifestations, anxiety, panic attacks, you know, um, insomnia. Some of them even have a fear of sleeping because every time they close their eyes, they get shown these films. And and then there's this buildup of pressure that now I've seen something about Chris and, oh, goodness, what if I tell him and he's not receptive? You know, some people really become nasty when they tell them certain things. So that inner turmoil, you know, do I speak, do I not speak out? Um, trying to do other things you know, to avoid sleeping. Some people would then resort to taking energy drinks and then working hard at mm. night just to avoid sleeping because of that discomfort that it causes if you don't speak out the message that you've been given. So I think this is fascinating, uh, and I'll tell you specifically why. We, On a previous podcast episode, we were looking at dreams and the meaning of dreams and the interpretation of dreams. And, of course, there's a very scientific view uh, that dreams are not specifically designed to be prophetic and what you're describing almost runs in the face of that kind of scientific evidence in terms of what dreams are, what they represent, because here we're seeing a very strong prophetic component to a dream, which is obviously acceptable within a specific cultural framework, whereas a different cultural framework would look at this and say, I don't think that's possible because, you know, that's not what the science is telling us. And this is one of the things in terms of doing my sort of background reading and and, and research and, and, and preparation for today's podcast is, is this tension between the conventional, which let me call it for convenience purposes, Western versus the traditional. And so there is this kind of tension uh, that exists in terms of interpretation and meaning um, behind, let's say, for example, the dream. What does a dream mean? So some would say, well, it's, it's, it's just random stuff. Whereas within a different culture, it's like, no, 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 this has got very specific meaning. This has got something which I have to communicate. In fact, I'm almost compelled to communicate because if I don't, it's going to cause problems for me. And that's what I'm understanding, Lerato. Would that be correct? No, very true. Um being in mental health, we were taught and we were given the understanding that dreams are a manifestation of your subconscious. Yes. And that's another school you know, of thought, yes. Yes. And and you will you will dream of things that your subconscious is trying to make sense of or whatever is causing discomfort in your in your subconscious. Um, but then also being an African child you know, you know that some people's dreams are not necessarily subconscious. Right. Um, they're more instructive. In, in fact, they're very conscious. They're very instructive. It's like, yes, this is what you have to do conscious. now. Yes. Right. So that's a very, yeah. that's a very important distinction. So, I mean, if, if we're coming back to, and, and we're obviously going to come back to that discussion, but I think that, the categorization of, of traditional healers. My understanding is that there are also what they call traditional birth attendants and traditional surgeons, because I think you've kind of alluded to the surgical side of things. Um, these are obviously somewhat different to those who are diagnosticians or who, who, who have the gift of seeing or those who are healers who know about plants and such like in terms of treatment. So there appear to be other categories of uh, of traditional healers 
Yes, there are different specialities. Um, like you said, there would be those traditional surgeons. There will be the traditional birth attendants. There will be those traditional um, rainmakers oh, or yes. those who's maybe he's a, he's a, he or she is a traditional healer who specializes with livestock or with, with farming crops. So, so there's different specialities. Okay. I like the rainmaker because I'm thinking of Mojaji. And I think yes, up in, yes, exactly. Yes. Up in the north, yes. up in the northeast, outside Zanin and the rainforest yes. there and the significance of uh, Queen Mojaji for, for yes. the local and people. And when you look in Botswana, there would be those Motaliji Pula. Right. Um, yes. So that's. I, I had a grandfather. He's late now in, in Lesotho and he was apparently world renowned for causing lightning. Okay. Stay away <laughs> I, from I him. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, 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 ah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. But the truth of the matter is what we're seeing is that there are more generalized, uh, traditional healers with more generic skills or generalized skills. There are traditional healers with more specific skills. And in some ways, it's a very similar differentiation to what you get in conventional medicine. Yes. You know, you've got your generalists and you've got your specialists. And I think that within the traditional healing world, it's, it's, it's not different. But I want to touch on something important now because we've, we've kind of been speaking about ancestors. And so the underlying understanding is the very powerful, uh, role that ancestors play and this whole concept of, of ancestral influence on, on, on life as it is. And how you interpret the, the, the lived experience, which may reflect issues beyond what you can see coming through from, from, uh, the ancestors and also the issue of bewitchment. But let's talk about ancestors because I think ancestral belief is something that's very powerful and very central to the traditional healing uh, approach or am I not correct there? It is very powerful because there, there is a connection between the spirit the, the, the physical realm yes. where we are at and the spiritual realm. And when one crosses over or, or, or passes through the physical going into the spiritual at time of death, you know, one stops being a physical being and now becomes a spiritual being. And it's not every single soul that has crossed over that necessarily becomes an ancestor. Mm. It also depends on on what, when, when you are conceived and when you are born, what, what your gift and what your purpose is in life. Um, Does everybody have gift and purpose or it's specific people, those who are eventually called? Personally, I believe we all have a gift and purpose that we serve. Um, it's just some people are more tuned into the higher frequency than others. Um, some people will see and hear things that that other mere people like myself would not necessarily be tuned into. Right. And and the role of ancestors that, that the ancestors play um, is more. And this is now for my personal belief. They they more intercede between the highest power. Um, I, I believe in God, right. and I believe that my ancestors intercede on my behalf between myself and God, much like my Catholic faith. Right. Um, I've, I've been able to marry my 
two faiths and it's not two faiths into one right. because as a Catholic um, woman, I grew up, I was taught by Catholic nuns since I was five and we are taught about saints. We know about the significance that Mother Mary plays right. in, in, in our lives as, as Catholics. We know that she intercedes on our behalf. Mm-hmm. We, we refer to biblical ancestors, the Joshua's, the Noah, the Abraham, the is you know Isaac right. and 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 those are our ancestors in in Christianity. Yes, so I think that the the issue of ancestral uh, importance is not confined to the realm of traditional healers and an underlying ethos or philosophy that that guides the practice. In fact, when you start to look at traditional healers, we've already seen how there's the generalist and the specialist. Now we're seeing that, in fact, the the role and the importance of, of, of ancestors is not just a, a function of traditional healing, but in fact, it, it, it goes beyond into other religions, cultures, um, so it's 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 not just purely an, an African phenomenon. So the other issue that comes through is this one of bewitchment and the belief in, 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 in bewitchment that needs to be addressed for a particular individual depending on what they're manifesting. How 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 important is is that belief and how important is that phenomenon actually? It it really goes with your belief system. I I was raised to believe that if if you believe that you will be bewitched, then you will be bewitched. So, for my understanding of of bewitchment and the havoc that it wreaks in a person's life, it's fear based. If you are told that I'm giving you, I've put muti in this cup, mm. and this muti is going to cause you to develop a snake inside your stomach. For for some people, that can cause a lot of anxiety. And then with that anxiety, you start experiencing those tactile sensations of the snake moving up and down. Um, because I've not been initiated, I'm not um, a traditional healer, mm. I cannot with certainty say that doesn't exist or not. But what I have noticed is patients of mine who would come to my practice believing that they had been bewitched when we start working with them and addressing the fear and the anxiety. And I give them my anti-anxiety medication and, and my antidepressants and we do the psychotherapy. The bewitchment goes away. <laughs> but it's, It goes away, but we alleviate the fear and anxiety. It's sounding like superstition. To, to, to a certain extent, if one believes in certain superstitions, then they have a power at the end of the day. And I think to some extent that, that, that sounds like what you are describing. And of course, in other cultures, we've got the evil eye that wards off the, yes. the, the, the evil spirit. So I think that there are other cultures who practice something similar. Um, and it's all founded on certain superstitions and mm-hmm. efforts to mitigate the potential of Bewitchment, so to speak, and I think that the the evil eye is quite a nice uh, symbol of 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 exactly that. Solly, you've been sitting very quietly. You've been listening to our conversation. Do you have any specific comments that you want to add at at this point? Because I am going to bring you in more specifically as we move through the conversation. But just at this point, anything specific that you might want to add? Only that uh, I'm feeling a bit bewitched at this stage. <laughs> uh, I, I think. 
there are days throwing, you know, some things at us that we don't understand. Uh, but the key issue, I think, from what uh, Dr. Kobe said is that you have to believe that these are these things are also be based on strong belief systems. Right. And uh, sometimes you may think those, if you are a Western-trained uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, or healer, you might think those are delusions. Right. People so strongly believe in them, but uh, if you don't address them in the way they think they should be addressed, uh, you don't win in terms of uh, making them understand that they might need extra help or there's a process of understanding their whole life, you know, the totality of our lives, and they can be guided through that process. If a person says, I have a, a calling, for, for me, it becomes a difficult issue because if I've not experienced a calling, or I don't know anyone who's experienced a calling, uh, my understanding of that is, is difficult, except to look at people who were very ill. I mean, we've had patients or people who had what appeared to be severe psychotic breakdown, something that looks like bipolar. They've been in and out of hospital. And then the family decides to consult traditional healers. And... Um, not those necessarily who use uh, herbal medicine, but those who pray for you and so and so on. And they take them through a process which we don't understand. Yes. And then the, the patient comes back to you six months later and says, you know, my family had to do these rituals. We are guided through these processes. I am well, doctor. I don't think I need your medication. Oh, but I still don't sleep very well. Maybe that medication that makes me sleep, uh, you can still prescribe for me. But but the rest of the other problem is taken care of. Now, the patient does not run away from you, but says, I have uh, been helped through traditional processes. Now, it becomes difficult for me to try and understand those traditional processes. And this is most probably something we, we talked about in, in the last interview, uh, Christopher, that um, unless you are close to families or people who, have that kind of calling who practice those uh, healing processes, you may not appreciate the patient's you know, um, request for referral to those healers. Yeah. Hence, I believe that um, at the interface of patient-doctor relationship, we have to allow the patient and patient's family to decide what they think is best at a given time for the patient. You may say, look, we can help you so that this particular person does not break windows and so and so on. There's medication that can help him to calm down and so and so on, but then you are free to consult other people. If you're going to get medication there, let me know so that we check if uh, it's not interacting uh, badly with what we offer. So so it's belief systems versus formalized Western, train, Western training. Well, I think that, what you're really talking about, or as, as I'm interpreting what you're saying, it's got a lot to do with respect. Where you, yes. you, you, you have to, and, and I think I've, I've co-opted this from someone else, but it's about finding your patient where they are. Not just saying, well, this is what I think and therefore this is what it is. This is what I know 
this is what I can do, but there may be more to the management and more to your healing than I can potentially offer you. And I think so that is very important and, and trying not to create an either or situation. And you know, when I, and I'm, and I'm going to touch on it later on in the conversation. When I, when I start to look at the literature, I almost get a sense that as much as there's a talk about cooperation and involvement, there almost feels to me like there's an either or kind of situation. And I think that this yeah. is something which you are speaking to now where you're saying, well, there's what we can do and there's what we are happy to do for you. There are other things that you may be wanting to pursue. And obviously we just want to make sure that the two are not in conflict, that they don't yeah. cancel each other out, so to speak, so that the patient gets the best care and gets the best outcome. Would that be a correct understanding, Soli? I think that's exactly what um, should uh, apply. And and um, in our previous discussion, I referred you to the work that's happening in Kenya, yes, uh, Nairobi and outside Nairobi by Professor Dete and his team. They go out to work with traditional dealers, not necessarily trying to understand exactly what they're doing, but they say, this is what we do. This is what we offer to people with mental illness or people who might be depressed or who might be anxious, who might be psychotic. Um, they present with this and that. And then traditional dealers will say, people who come to us present with those things too. And then the question would be, are you able to help all of them? Mm-hmm. And they say, yes, some of them we are able to help, but uh, we don't know what to do with the others. That is why we tie them to trees or, to, you know, we lock them up in houses or in cages and so on. Yes. And then prophetess and the day's team would say, we might be able to help with some medication to calm those people because it's a bit inhuman to tie them up or to lock them up in cages and so on. And then they say, okay, we, we can let you help them, but please refer them back when you're done. Right. Now, that, that relationship is very important. So here is Prof. Dete's team not trying to take over or go into the inner workings of uh, the traditional healers, mm. whether they use herbal medicine or they pray or they're just diagnosticians, but saying you have your part that you understand, which we don't understand. But it seems as though with your part, there are certain people that are not able to help. We can try to assist and we will make sure that uh, when they are come, we refer them back to you. Yes. Or you can even come and see them in our hospitals right. to make sure that uh, they are still in touch with them, the calling or the spirit or whatever it force it is that makes them behave this way. So, so that that is a form of collaboration. Yes. That's not saying they are taking away from our art or we are taking away from the art. Yes. So I think it's it's nobody is surrendering. But everybody's working yes. working together in a spirit of, of of mutual respect and ultimately in the best interests of the patient because that's ultimately what it's about. There are no egos here. There are patients in distress and we need to work with whoever and in whatever way to alleviate that distress and, and, and return them to a level of functioning that is appropriate for, for who they are. So I think that's a, that's a very important message actually. And I think it's one that we're going to be, you know, pushing throughout the, the episode. But I wanted to get back to the issue of, of a traditional healer in terms of being called. So. I'm interested in the the training because obviously depending on the type of healer that you might be, 
there will be different training. There would be a different person who trains you. It might be for a different period. So, Lerato, do you have any uh, uh, specific comments on, on, on how one actually becomes a traditional healer, aside from the fact that you now have the calling and you obviously present yourself, I assume, to, to, to someone who you can share that with, who might be able to address the calling. How does one go about becoming a traditional healer? So I think also depending on the category of, of traditional healer that you are. Right. So those that are called to be diagnosticians and healers, um, they get their callings really through the dreams that they would have. Right. A lot of my patients that I've interacted with, family members, my mom as well, um, the reports would be they would dream, for example, they would dream of water, large bodies of water. They would dreams see themselves immersed in this water and they often then develop a phobia in in conscious in conscious level they would then develop a phobia for water saying that if we are now maybe going for a christmas party at hartipias Dam, they, they they can't be too close to the water because the water is calling them you know towards it so um others get shown in dreams also who is going to be not, not training, but guiding them in their training. Because the belief is if you are Nagayasi Soto by birth, you don't need to be trained. You already have, you just need a guide uh-huh. who will guide you into understanding some of these manifestations. Right. So they do get shown in dreams who the Gobela is or the Mamusevilitsi is that they have to go to. Some of them will not be shown specifically a, a a face of who's going to help them, but they will have this compelling urge to travel to a specific destination. And upon arrival to that destination, they'll find an old man or an old woman saying, I've been waiting for you. Welcome, my child. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's the most it's the scariest thing when you think about it that you just have to travel with faith. You know, the Bible teaches us when when Jesus was teaching, he was teaching us to have childlike faith. Mm -hmm. And that's really what this calling does to you. You have to believe even though you don't understand. Yes. People travel that road. It can be very dicey, especially for family, not giving support and saying, how do you just leave your job and travel to a place that you've never traveled to? And how do you know? where you are going and the answer often is i will know when i get there that this is the place i mean that's very powerful you know the need to have faith for these specific individuals and i think what you've introduced is 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 actually quite profound in the sense that they're not so much trained as they're guided they've got it in them they just need to find the appropriate forum for that to get expression for them to then become what they should be becoming or what they're destined to become that's how I've understood what you've what you've explained. Yes. Okay. Precisely. <laughs> okay. So, you know, in 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 very Western terms, we're very um, focused on the consumer and protecting the consumer and quality control. And how do we know that the person we are consulting for a specific problem is suitably qualified? And we're going to get what we what we came for. So, how is that? translated into the traditional healer uh, uh, um, realm, so to speak, these kinds of, 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 of issues, or are they not really even discussed? Unfortunately, there isn't really a proper 
regulatory body. And I think the reason for that is is because of of our history mm. during um, colonialization um, with the Witchcraft Suppression Act. Um, you know, the one that came, um, the Witchcraft Act by Great Britain in, in was 1735, okay. and then later in the Cape Colony, the Witchcraft um, Witchcraft Suppression Act in 1835 or 18 something, um, where those practicing traditional medicine had to do it in secrecy. Okay. So yes. there was that secrecy, and because of that secrecy, it could never be formalized because it was an issue of not trusting the regime. Mm-hmm. Why do they want to know what we are doing? Do they now want to take this away from us? So it, it became difficult to then you know, formalize that industry and then regulate it properly. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a perfect segue to, to, to what I wanted to discuss next, which is the speaking of acts, the traditional health practitioners act number 22 of 2007. And I mean, this was an act that was introduced in parliament as an attempt to, to formalize practices and to align with Western systems. And one of the key uh, agendas was the establishing of the traditional health practitioners council of South Africa, which sounds very much like the health professions council of South Africa, but a traditional healer version. And, 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 and when I was looking at who the council would comprise, it was interesting to me to see that there was a medical doctor that needed to be a member as well as a, a pharmacist. So there were some non-traditional uh, members who were part of that council. And I, I was thinking to myself, well, is that to provide oversight Influence. I wasn't quite sure what the implications were, but certainly that um, council was about determining qualifications to register, to determine fees, and essentially it was about ensuring quality, protecting members of the public, and promoting ethical and professional standards, which again sounds to me very much like the Health Professionals Council of South Africa. So, Solly Lerato, what are your, what were your comments on, on, on the Traditional Health Practitioners Act, noting that the regulations were only published in 2015. So the act was passed, it, it, it was in 2007, but early in 2015 did we get the regulations. But just in, in terms of your thoughts about the, the act itself, maybe Solly, you can jump in and then Lerato, you can comment. You know, um, the act was also a response to an appeal by traditional healers of different backgrounds that uh, they are helping people in communities, but they're ignored. Whereas the other doctors, Western trained, are well catered for and so and so on. There was also a reference to traditional, uh, the indigenous uh, healing systems, uh, indigenous medications, herbs and so on. And there's a whole, you know, industry and uh, scholarship in the area. There are people who go around looking at these helps, categorizing them. And there's reference to the fact that uh, many of these helps, actually the source of uh, some of the medications that you use in modern medicine. Right. But they're extracted in a proper way, in a particular way, and then they're packaged either in form of uh, tablets, gels, or, you know, uh, liquid medicines. Now, here's the problem. With those, you know, you have 50 mils of this. 
you have five milligrams of this tablet, you have um, this particular gel that you apply, and you are told how to apply it, and so on and so on. The traditional healer will say, we also have our ways of uh, using those things. Right. We either bend them, um, or we boil them, we get people to drink them, and so on. Now, the concerns of the modern uh, regulators and the modern practitioners is the concentration in the boiled medication, uh, it's not known. Right. How do you know whether it's enough or too much or too little? And how long do you have to give it? And, and, and they tell you they know when to stop and they know how much to give for a particular condition. Now, in the Western train, in the Western training, you say, well, if this is pneumonia, we'll treat with A, B, and C. Right. We'll be checking for these symptoms. If they disappear, persons longer coughing, they're strong, they can eat and so on. You do an x-ray, uh, there's clearing of the lungs and so on. Uh, we, we know the person is healed. Now, you don't know what make, what uh, methods are used to determine when the person is healed. Is it just a stable person? How do they know inside that the person is still not well? This is the difficulty. I, I don't know whether you see the kind of tightrope I'm trying to walk there, uh, which is uh, measuring openly. We have scales there, but then there are other spiritual scales where you, you you depend on what you understand, what how you are trained. You see a person getting better, getting stronger, but you have not measured the concentration, uh, but you have combined things in a manner that you are taught, and they provide healing to that person. Well, I think it's about standards and objective measures. And I think that yes. there is a different understanding in terms of the traditional practitioner or the traditional healer and the conventional Western-style medicine. Lerato, I mean... But here's the key issue, yes. uh, Christopher. Mm. When traditional healers are together, yes, they can tell each other whether one is right or wrong. Right. They, they, right. they, they can discuss in... The language they understand, they know these herbs, for instance, and uh, those who pray will tell you that they can feel certain things through prayer and they're able to advise accordingly. So the problem is when we are in that company and we try to understand what they're doing, where we, we, if you're not part of it, if you don't have the calling or you're not in the system, it is difficult for you to comprehend. Right. Lerata? No, true. I mean, in psychiatry, we've got our rating scale, yes. and that can help us determine if you know we are winning or not with a patient. In in in, in traditional medicine, I'm sure they also have their own rating scales. Same way that a um, Gogo Nzwaki would not understand my. Hamilton depression rating scale. Yeah. I won't understand her scales. And having me as a medical doctor, having a pharmacist to sit on the regulatory board for traditional African healers, traditional healers yes. doesn't make sense unless they too are traditional healers and they understand. Well, I think that's that's very interesting, and that's what I was kind of alluding to where I'm saying, okay, why would you specifically put a medical practitioner and a pharmacist on a council of uh, a traditional health practitioners where they actually have no real understanding of how the practitioners are actually going about their business? But if you look at the regulations, I mean, they were quite specific that 
To be a traditional health practitioner, there was a mandatory registration with the council. And they were also talking about minimum training standards with specific categories, a specific period of training, specific competencies, and an age at which you would be permitted to actually be registered as a specific type of healer. And also that there had to be an accreditation system for trainers and training institutions. Now, for me, this is very much conventional. And I'm not seeing how it plays itself out within the context of traditional healers, not least of which I came across data that said there are some 200,000 traditional healers in South Africa. And that as of November 2020, keeping in mind that the regulations were published in 2015, nobody had officially registered. So the traditional healers were kind of voting with their feet. They were not subjecting themselves to formal registration. So this whole apparatus has been set up with regulations, specifications. Nobody's coming to the party. So Solly and Lerato, your your comments on that. And specifically Solly, because I know that as chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee, one of your committee members technically should be somebody with at least five years experienced as a registered traditional health practitioner. So I'm 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 kind of curious what you think about these regulations and I'm curious as to how it's actually playing out within the ministerial advisory committee. I think the ministerial advisory committee was still at the stage of trying to grapple with understanding of uh, right. the various types of uh, traditional healers. And uh, we were at a stage where we were asking them to prepare presentations to us in terms of how they work. And uh, that process didn't continue because there were other emergencies, like evaluating the provinces, the mental health, you know, service delivery readiness and so on. And we hope that the new committee will, will delve more into this so that... Uh, if we are giving a voice, you know, to traditional healers in this committee and we send their request to the minister, we have a fair, not, not total understanding of how they do, but uh, an understanding of uh, how they are organized, number one. Number two, uh, to what extent do they reach out to the community and how people respond to them? And I must say, um, my concern anyway, yes. um, Christopher, is that... Uh, I'm seeing more and more young people mm-hmm. saying they have a calling. Uh, they don't go to school. I mean, I've attended some of these rituals because a friend's daughter had gone to for training and was back home and is welcomed home. There's a traditional, there's a feast to, to welcome the person home and so on and so on. Then you find so many young people who are, who have come to support and they've also been trained. Uh, actually, if you, were to calculate the number of traditional healers in South Africa, you will find that there are more than the Western trained doctors registered with the HPCSA. And, and that is, becomes a big issue for me. Uh, how do we regulate that is difficult. I don't know whether we'll even understand it unless we continue to engage uh, in discussions with traditional healers, not just the one person who's representing them in the Ministerial Advisory Committee. I think there should be an open forum where the current committee would, would basically invite them and invite other people to sit together and say, let us listen, let us be told, let's, let's get to understand 
how the traditional leaders are organized well, and want to organize it, themselves. It, yeah. it, it, it's important. Because it just feels to me like it's – sorry, just to jump if in. Like it, the, it just feels to me like it's been a very top-down process in terms of not just the act but specifically the regulations. Yeah. Partly so. Partly so. And it appears that way right. if there is no openness on the other end. If you don't get a clear message that says this is how we work, this is how we operate – for instance, the people who uh, use helps, who go out, dig different helps, and they can classify them, categorize them, they tend to be more specific in the way they work. But diviners, uh, spiritualists, and so on, sometimes you may have difficulty understanding them because they live in the world of the spirit, and uh, that's not something tangible to you or to us. You know, uh, so so that that becomes a complication. Now we went to, we have to work out the interface between our kind of training and the training of the different traditional healers, uh, whether in fact the different categories understand each other, they can work together, you know. But um, until such time, there's openness about what they do, how they do it. It will appear as though government is saying, yes. we don't accept you, or unless you do A, B, C, and yes. D. Now that's going to be a top-down approach. But uh, if there's openness and uh, it's gazetted and uh, there's no conflict in practice and there are no complaints, for instance, from employers, from uh, families, from patients that they've treated, you know, I, I mean, for instance, now, if you are a psychiatrist or a surgeon in this country and you have not treated the patient properly, there are complications. Patients know that they have yes. access to Health Professions Council of South Africa. They can report you. It can be investigated. And you're not guilty all the time. Yes, you may found you may be found to have not used the standard guidelines to manage the patient, and and therefore you might be cautioned or fined or reprimanded in whatever way. But do we have the same system with traditional healers? Who do we go to? Yeah, maybe the writer can help us there because uh, I mean, is there a really reference point where you can say we went to such a healer and he belongs to this group? But we are not happy with well, the I think you, management well, I, we received. I, I think you're talking I, I really about standards of care, and you're being able to say, right, can we judge you against what yes. we would regard as a standard of care? So, Lerato, jump in there. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts? There aren't standards of, standards of care. Yeah. You know, you will find that people who have undergone hotwasa under the same gobela will practice in a similar manner. But then two streets down the road, there's a different gobela who takes the initiates through a different process because there are those that will go undergo their, 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 their training or fine-tuning their skills by, by being in the fields. There are those that would need to go into caves and to, into the small streams that are in the caves. There are those that need to go to rivers. So there is really no standard of care. But I think there's just certain expectations that if Umundao, you know that you are going to be in the water and then there are those that are not water gods or, or, or water healers and then they work differently using either herbs or, 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 or different types of soils. So in terms of standards of care and trying to formalize a regulatory body, I think it's, it's going to be extremely difficult um, and in trying to do it, like you said, it should not be a 
top to bottom yes. affair. It, it should start really, you know, at, at grassroots level. One, getting the mutual respect. Yep. And, and the approach of there needs to be a medical doctor, there needs to be a pharmacist in the regulatory body, in a way is saying we as Western health professionals have to oversee that you as traditional healers are doing the right thing. Mm. Who gives us the right to do that when we have no idea what happens in the spiritual realm? Well, I think that's very important. And that's why I'm saying to to you and to Solly, as I read through the act, as I look at the regulations, as I'm seeing how there is this attempt to structure traditional healers in a way that parallels uh, conventional medicine, I think that we're trying to put square pegs in round holes. I'm not sure that there is a, a, a natural fit in that sense, which goes back to what Solly was saying is there needs to be an open forum to create an understanding before we move forward. But it seems to me it's been the other way around. And as I said, going back to what I've understood from November 2020, what I'd, what I'd researched, nobody has officially applied to be actually registered with the Traditional Health Practitioners Council. So that in itself sends a very strong message to me that there is something not happening at the level that government would necessarily have wanted, that the medical bodies would necessarily have wanted. And I I think that sends a very powerful statement in itself. And that in itself is an issue where we need to say, okay, there are all these people out there who are providing services for sections of the community. Um, we don't fully understand what they do from a formal medical sense. We know that they do certain things, and for specific individuals, it appears to provide them with what they need. But we don't necessarily understand exactly how that works, and we want to bring them into our system or create a parallel system that kind of mirrors our system I'm not sure that that's necessarily appropriate. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just not sure what the most appropriate way to actually accomplish what they're setting out to accomplish is. And I, I, I'm seeing that the, the formal attempts are not really meeting with any success. That's my impression. And I don't know what your thoughts are on, on, on that because I think what Solly has proposed or discussed hasn't necessarily taken place in, 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 in an open spirit of mutual respect collaboration and communication. That's how I would look at the situation. And I think certainly as psychiatrists, we know that many of our patients do consult traditional healers. And I think it's, and, and I think it's important that we accept that if you look at the numbers of psychiatrists, the HPCSA would say there's just over 600 who are registered. That doesn't mean that they are practicing. It just means they're registered. And when you look at the extent of the availability of traditional healers, you are seeing that there is a significant difference in terms of, 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 of availability and the ability to provide some kind of service, which we don't fully understand. But one of the other things that I came across was the, the, the understanding that if you are not consulting conventional medical practitioners, then you're not necessarily receiving health care at all. And so the fact that you consult a traditional healer is not necessarily seen as health care in that sense. And I'm, I'm also not sure if, if that is correct. And so that's why I'm posing the question in terms of where traditional healers fit in. So I said a hell of a lot, but Lerato and then maybe Solly, just to sort of come in and, 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 and comment on some of my thoughts. Traditional healers don't only take care of, of people's livestock or um, providing 
protection when one is buying a new home or moving into a new home, but they are part of the healthcare system at a traditional or, or communal level. If a child, um, an infant, is crying and, and in, in Western medicine would say maybe they're colicky, somebody who's in the village, there's no clinic nearby, they will take them to their local traditional healer who is known to specialize with infant disorders. Right. There will be certain things that would be done for that child, certain things done directly to the child, certain rituals that are done around the child and in the child's home. And lo and behold, colic goes away. Same way as in, in, in the Christian church, in, in, in Catholic religion, yes. when there's a feeling that people are not sleeping in the house, there seems to be something eerie in the house, we would burn Catholic incense and suddenly we would sleep like babies. Right. So, so there is a lot of value in, in what alternative healers can offer to people. And yes, being part of the healthcare system is important. Like earlier, we said that there are traditional birth attendants. Yes. There are traditional circumcision surgeons. So, you know, one of these sort of... I think, uh, just uh, before I continue, yes. uh, Christopher, yeah. I think uh, there are some overlaps in the sense that you know, when you when people go to traditional healers, it's almost like they have now gone to somebody who would provide some basic counseling. Yes. Or intensive at stage. So what you call psychotherapy, they may not be calling it psychotherapy, but uh, it's a form of counseling. So it's not just uh, diagnosing, uh, giving medication, but they guide you. They ask you about your life situation. What else is happening in your life? So they're able to get into the deeper realms of uh, your lifestyle and so and so on yes. and tell you how that will conflict with um, your ability to succeed in life, you know, uh, why that would, would, would make life difficult for you. So so there are also community therapists, so to say, yes. or psychotherapists in a way, but uh, we may not see it that way if it's not structured the way we think we are structured. But 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 it is specific. I think the things we don't understand are the helps and also uh, the calling and also um, healing provided by prayer, for instance. Yes. Many people will yes. not understand that, but they do provide guidance. Well, I think that when I read through the South African literature, the data that looks at traditional healers, I mean, there's certain themes that come through. For example, the need to increase mental health literacy of traditional healers, like it's one-way traffic. Uh, the fact that um, accessing traditional healers may delay uh, access to formal health care. So they're kind of getting in the way of what people really need. And there's a concern, somebody coined the phrase medical pluralism, like there are two systems. And so I, I, I think that it's important to understand that traditional healers actually play a role in the health of many South Africans and that one should be a little bit careful about how you – Think about things you don't necessarily fully understand. So again, I'm not endorsing one thing over another or saying you should go in one direction and not the other direction. But I do think we have to accept that there's a certain reality within the South African context and probably other African countries and other countries around the world as well, where we need to be very mindful of our patients, their needs, and who else might be providing care for them. So I, I mean, what I am seeing is that this attempt to, to, 
to formalize, I'm not sure that it's really happening or that it's necessarily realistic. Um, the question of traditional healers as, 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 as being some kind of barrier to care, I'm questioning that. But I want to get back to something that you said as we, as we come to the end of, of, of our conversation. And I'm sorry, time is, is our enemy here. I think, Lerato, in your, in your presentation, I, I saw one of the slides and you spoke about collaboration, education, but bi-directional and mutual respect. So do you want to comment a little bit further on those three things that you, that I really took out of your presentation? Collaboration is is important in the sense that if I'm sitting in my consulting room and I'm faced with a patient who is presenting with something that is specific to his or her culture and I'm able to calm the psychiatric manifestations thereof, but there's still this niggling need to pursue the traditional route, be able to sit them down with their family and encourage the family to take them to a healer or an, an, an African doctor that they trust. Right. Right. And the same way that if a traditional healer is sitting with a patient that they can see genuinely that this person is having psychiatric manifestation, be it because of, of their traditional calling or the traditional issues, but they cannot work with them. Instead of tying them around the tree, be able to refer them to my office so that I can calm them down. Yep. And I've the first time I saw it, I was a little girl working. I mean, I was in, the, in, in my grandmother's consulting surgery. We called it Ndomba. And, and there was a young lady who was there. In hindsight, when I think of it, she was very psychotic. Mm. And I remember my grandmother saying to this child's um, family members, who say, take her to Mfulo Clinic. So my grandmother was in so Take her to Mfulo Clinic. And the sister there is going to give her a pink pill. Mm -hmm. She must take that pink pill every day. And then after six months, you can bring back your child. And then we can ascertain if she has a calling or not. Right. When I got to Vescopies and I saw that haloperidol is actually pink, right. and I thought to myself, wow. Haloperidol <laughs> being an antipsychotic drug, one of the older being an generations. Being antipsychotic yes. was pink, yes. Exactly. Um, so, but it, it, it's, a bit, it, it's a matter of having respect. Yeah. In Pretoria, I have got a network of about three traditional healers who train initiates. Right. And when they have somebody who will, become manic or become psychotic, they were actually able to phone me and bring them to my office right. so we could either admit them, you know, do the crisis intervention, get them asychotic, and then they go back. If, if we could all just find some kind of um, network, referral network, yes. where patients can then be treated safely and, and, and adequately. Well, I think that would be ideal. So once again, issues of collaboration, it's bi-directional, and of course it's based on mutual respect. So Lerato and Solly, I want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your willingness to share your time and knowledge. We didn't specifically answer the question posed, but I've got no doubt that listeners will do that for themselves. And I'm going to leave you with some words to ponder from Jordan Peterson. He wrote these words in his book, Beyond Order, and he says, The careless demolition of tradition is the invitation to the emergence of chaos. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness. 
in proud association with Atcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy 